Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's good to see you and those of you that are watching online to that same end. Um, if you're online and you're new to West Cohasset, you can go to our website, westcoasetchapel.com, and take a moment there, and I think that would be a really good help to you. So um, thank you for considering that. Happy New Year, everyone. I, uh, I almost didn't get here. I, the plan was early this week to leave to go see our son. He was moving. He wanted to help. Um, he wasn't home for Christmas, and so that was added to it. So our first flight was canceled on Sunday night. So I spent the night in the airport with my wife uh, because we were waiting, hoping to get on a flight. That didn't happen. We waited another day and a half, and we were on a flight safely to Seattle, had a few days with, with our son, didn't get to help him move because the whole thing was Monday and Tuesday were the moving dates. Anyway, we, we still had a nice time with him. And then the plan was to come back early Saturday morning, and that plan failed because we got a text from the airline that said that our flight was canceled. So um, in panic, <laughs> I wish I would have remembered that song. Anyway, I, we were trying to get home, and we found one seat on a flight that was going from Seattle to Chicago and Chicago to Minneapolis uh, Saturday afternoon. So Nicole and I did, what is it, rock, paper, scissors, I won, I got on the flight, she's on a flight right now, um, flying home, Lord willing, and she's on the flight, and Lord willing, she'll be home. And all of it was crazy. On, when I found out that I was flying in Chicago, Chicago had a major snowstorm, wind, 40 mile per hour gust, so I got out of the airplane into the Chicago airport and looked on the board, and probably 85% of the flights were canceled. And, and there was one not canceled flight, and that was my flight. And I was like, okay, so I'm probably going to stay in Chicago. <laughs> and anyway, I didn't want to have to call Earl and say, I don't think I'm coming in. Not that he's scary, Earl's kind, but I just didn't want to disappoint. So made it. And the whole thing was uneventful and safe until I got into Grand Rapids. So here's the thing. It's 8 o'clock at night, right? 8 o'clock. So this is not like midnight. It's 8 o'clock at night. And I'm driving in right to the city limits, and I'm going 30 mile per hour in a 40 mile per hour speed zone. It was 20 something below. I figured that was safe. But the person behind me didn't think it was good, and they started flashing me like crazy. So I'm like, is this like high school? You know, I haven't had this happen to me in a long time. So I just said, okay, I need to speed up. So I sped up. And they're driving, I'm driving, they're way ahead, but they hit a red light. Okay, so red light, and here I come slowly up next to them. And I didn't, I was looking forward, right? Because I was thinking, you know, okay, they started yelling stuff at me. I mean, they were like, they rolled down their window, I could see them, and they were yelling at me. I'm like, this hasn't happened since I was like 18, you know? So I said, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I should do what I always do. So I rolled down, well, first I said, hey, Siri. Play the song Bad to the Bone. So that song kicked on. <laughs> and I rolled down my window. And by the way, this part of the story isn't true. So anyway, <laughs> I, I rolled down my, in my mind, it was going, you know. I rolled down my window and I looked at them and I said, hey, do you know who I am? And, and they said, no. I said, well, I, my name's Zach Holzman. And if you got trouble with me, you come and find me. <laughs> no, you know what I was really thinking of? I was thinking of, don't look left, don't look left. <laughs> and then I was thinking, where's Nicole? Because usually it bails me out in a time like that. Tell me what to do. But then I was thinking of Aesop's fable. Do you know the fable of the tortoise and the hare? And the tortoise, zoom, and, or the, that, was the, that was the hare. And then I was the tortoise. And, and I'm like, see, it all kind of ended out in the way it should. So anyway, that's what happens when you're without my wife for like 30, 24 hours. So, Okay. Well, I want to say something to you before we start <laughs> that actually means something. <laughs> so as we open this book, and, and I would ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as you're turning there, the idea of an unchurched Christian would have not made sense to the inspired by the Holy Spirit writers and apostles of the New Testament. And my guess is that no one here that has been part of this church for any length of time 
does not understand, I would say, say it like this, the, the prospect and the certainties of the things that are set before us now at this exact stage in the life of this church, whose head is Christ himself. So in that, as a church, we are not pursuing new truth as we look to the future, rather, rather eternal truth, which does not find its source from us, but from God through his word. And I think we learned that last week. There's all the difference in the world between human or worldly wisdom and divine or God's wisdom. And as we think about our future, I mean, we're going to be doing that in the next week, as Earl said, I think it's fair to say that we want to continue to be a church that's honest, right? So we don't know everything, we're going to fail, and we're going to make mistakes. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are not followers of perfection. And as long as we wear this flesh, we will struggle, every one of us, with indwelling sin. Therefore, we want to be a humble church. We don't want to be arrogant, not argumentative. We, we want to have a like, Christ-centered subversion, undermining the wisdom of the world constantly. But we want to show true humility towards all men and all women, no matter who they are. So we want to be a true, merciful, loving, effective, broken, faith-filled, grace-filled, Christ-centered, cross-centered church, which finds its worth, listen carefully, not in her performance, right? That's the tricky part right now, trying to find our value in what we're doing and what we think we're going to do. But we find our worth in Christ alone and his performance in the finished work at the cross. And so we find our truth we find our mission, we find essentially every principal thing that, that runs through the life of the church from the word of God. And therefore, we find our strength, our hope, we find our provision, we find our promise, we find our future in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. There cannot be any other way than that. Because every other way, in all honesty, that's human wisdom, relying on human techniques for something that it's a God-given mission for his church. And we can't ever think that God hasn't spoken clearly to his church about who we are and what we do and so on. Okay, thank you for that. And let, let's pray before we read God's word. Father, as we begin this new year, may, may your old eternal truth guide us in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ, that the promise to build your church in depth and in breadth is a promise you have made. So please help us to live and to think and to plan and, and lead, and by golly, enjoy that promise and serve in light of that promise. And God, as your word is preached, show us our Savior, show us our, your glory, show us ourselves, and please help me in my weakness to preach and help me and us and our weakness to listen and to believe and to frame our lives and specifically the life of this, your church, to its truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Brothers and sisters, I could not address to you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God is making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they each will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day 
And I believe in most of your translations, day is capitalized. It means on the last day, we'll bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If I could, on the last day, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Those last two verses we're not going to get to today, Lord willing, next Sunday, but those are awfully important. It's like, one, it's like Paul's final lesson in this whole uh, chapter that was written. So, so um, we thank God for his word. So my wife and I were walking a couple of weeks ago, and I asked her this question. I said, while the kids were home, did we ever give them the impression, or did we ever say to them, hey, we, we want you to have a really good job, and we want you to have a really good life, so we want you to do this. And we, you know, the typical things, go to school, work hard, be safe, and you know, things like that. And then add it on that and make sure you keep going to church. Okay, so question, did we ever say to the kids, you know, we want you to have a really good job and we want you to have a really good life, so do this, all those things, and make sure you keep going to church. Well, stay with me. We thought about that question. We both agreed that we did not say, you know, we want you to have a good job, so, or, or you know, make sure you go to or keep going to church. So we didn't say it. We didn't give them that impression in the context of having a better life or a good job or, you know, fulfilling life. And so we didn't turn Jesus kind of like in a genie in a bottle or a good luck charm. However, we both said, you know, we need to ask the kids to make sure. And so we did. And so we, we actually, call, I called Jared, my son, and, and we both talked to Lindsay. I think it was via Zoom. And both of them said no. And they said it right away, which was good, and kind of like, uh, you know, you guys weren't even close to that thing. Now, after they said that, we both said, thank God, that that didn't happen. Now, why do I say that? Well, well, here's one reason. When I was getting ready for this sermon, I was reading a really good studies, two studies, two pastors, two sociologists on church attendance in America. And so, I'm going to read you a quote from one of the studies, uh, a gentleman named Trevin Wax. And it's a little long, but I think it'll help, and it's definitely going to help us as we try to understand what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. In most recent years, religion has moved from being a communal solidarity project to, to a, what Smith and Adam Zizek, and those are the two sociologists, call a personal identity accessory. Okay? That's a sociologist. According to this model, the purpose of religion is not to promote right living grounded in good beliefs— but to offer practices and techniques that promote coping with life and the making of good choices. More parents believe it's important for their kids to be religious because they think this will help them out in life. You see, that's why I asked the question. In other words, your quest for personal authenticity is at the center, and religion, which is supposed to be communal, is thought of as more personal and is to adapt in ways that prove helpful to only your personal journey. So then the church is about you. Therefore, the focus isn't on your adherence to an authentic core of revealed truth, but on religious, religion's helpfulness in your quest to be authentic in your development of a personal identity and goals. He continues, the center of spiritual authority has shifted from the church to the individual and to the family. So in other words, we are our own authority. In this environment, the purpose of a religious congregation is to help people discover their personal identity 
and develop morals to help them through life, indeed a better life. And if most parents believe it's important for their kids to be religious because they think this will help them out in life, then where does this leave the church? This means most Christians see church life, and this is Christians in America, see church life and church attendance as something optional, something good if it helps you along in your personal spiritual life, but not if it gets in the way, not if it's something commanded, required, or essential to your faith. He goes on, a survey from several years ago shows that only 35% of Americans believe that attending worship service constitutes an essential part of being a Christian. Why such low percentages of American Christians believe church going is unnecessary? Now, he gives three answers, and this is from the study and the two studies and the two pastors. First, the answer is obvious. We live in a highly individualistic culture in a fragmented, fragmented era of expressive individualism. Many people see themselves as lone individuals who only come together based on common interests or common goals. And if you don't know the word tribalism, that's tribalism. So common interests, common goals, tribe. Any commitment we make is on our own terms. So there's no outside authority coming to us. It's inside authority, our own authority, and that's how we decide if we're going to be with the tribe or not. Second reason for that low percentage, we live in an anti-institutional age. Institutions, whether they be educational or political or religious, get a bad rap. Now, some of that is deserved. Corruption can take root in institutions. Ritual and routines can stifle creativity and innovation. But more Americans than ever before are suspicious towards institutions, including religious ones. But it can be easy to criticize leaders especially after the thing is done, everyone is wise. But again, the idea, and this is me, the idea of, of an unchurched Christian wouldn't have made sense to the New Testament writers, right? Third reason, and it's one we do well to consider, because this church-going is optional mindset may be a negative effect of things we ourselves have said. Now, this is, this is striking to me. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a great rise in church attendance. Much of the church going during that time was cultural, though. Upstanding citizens in the community would go to church because, well, that's what upstanding citizens did. Not always because they had a genuine faith or a personal relationship with God. In response, some preachers and pastors emphasized the distinction between cultural Christianity and what it means to be born again, a Christian who has genuinely been converted. This was always an evangelical hallmark to say it's not enough just to be nominally religious, but radically saved. Now, I grew up in that mindset, all right? So you just couldn't be a Christian, if you would. You had to be like radically a Christian. And, another, and a lot of people, and I never believed this, but a lot of people, like all mainliners, they're not really Christians. Not like radical Christians like, quote, we evangelicals are. To heighten the contrast, church leaders would say things like, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You need to, as an individual, have a personal faith in Jesus. Looking back, we may conclude that that was the right move at the time. Distinguishing between the trappings of faith and the, and the substance of salvation remains vital. But I wonder if in the decades that followed, the truth that church going, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian morphed into a different idea. That being a Christian doesn't necessarily include going to church. I wonder if people started thinking that personal individual faith in Jesus is the only important thing. And if the church can help, with you, help you with that, fine. But if not, that's fine too. When I was a student in Romania, American evangelists would come and preach, and they'd sometimes say things like, I'm calling you to trust in Jesus, not become part of the church. We've probably all heard that in some way. The translators would always change that last part. I remember one of my professors, who was also a pastor, saying, that's not really true. When we call people to follow Jesus, we're calling them to be part of his people, of his body. I think the Romanians were right. When we urge people in our congregation to trust in Jesus and to turn from sin, we are also calling them to become part of our fellowship. We call them into the 
family of, of God. I find, and this is me now, that's the end of it, I find it really hard to, to argue with the logic and, and the reason and the, some of the conclusions of his study. Because in effect, he's saying a lot of people are thinking that church is about them. It's their church driven by their needs and therefore their agenda. And they might not do that purposefully, but I think that's pretty fair to say that that can happen. But Jesus said, and the Bible says, that the church belongs to God. Acts chapter 20, verse 8. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, that's speaking to leaders in the church. And I think it's fair to say what a horrible thing it would be for the church of Jesus Christ if we just kind of turned into, and this was the problem in Corinth, by the way, if we turned into kind of like a power-hungry church filled with power-hungry hungry Christians who, who want power, and in that you find immaturity, you find foolishness, you find worldly wisdom, and you lay aside not only the promises of what it means to be in Christ, you also lay aside what is now given in Christ and what you have in Christ. So let me summarize what he said. Number one, this is what's taking place in a lot of, th- in a lot of cultural Christians these days. Number one, the personal self is the center of everything. Your goals, your personal ambitions, your dreams, and the church is there to help serve those things and nothing more. Now, no one is saying that your personal goals and your, and your personal ambitions are bad and your dreams are bad. That's silly. But it is silly to think that if the church can't help you out, then you can push the church aside. That's not what the church was designed for. That's the first thing. The second thing, in summary, is institutions are and can, you know, depending on the person, they can get in the way of your self-expression. And by the way, the thinking is no institution can really be trusted. And so the common thought is we we will have no authority over us because we know what's best for us. And you have to think it was God who instituted the family. It was God who instituted government. It was God who instituted authority. Third thing, because the self then is the center of authority, a person alone can decide what is true and what is not true for them. Okay, not just what is true and not true, period, but what is true and what is not true for them. And you know this, it's like what's true for you may not be true for me. Now, that's very silly to say that and to think that way. Now, I know everything that I've said is a lot to consider, but it's not new to humanity. And in a very real sense, it was happening in the church in Corinth. I mean, you you heard the Bible read, petty selfishness, mistrust in authority, namely Paul's authority. And, And in essence, they had kind of like made up spirituality. You can read that in chapters 13 or, yeah, 13, 14, and 15. And all of those things, selfishness, pettiness, immaturity, mistrust of authority, it it, it basically impeded their ability to grow or to mature in Christ. And so what they needed is what everybody needs. They needed truth outside of themselves from God through an authoritative voice. And that voice would be the Apostle Paul to come to their aid. And we have three points, and we're only going to get to two of them. You are God's church, that's the first point. You are God's field, that's the second. And then, Lord willing, the third next Sunday is you are God's building. Okay, so first of all, you are God's church. Now, the Apostle Paul in three chapters, two, three, and four, gets to the heart of the matter. And the reason, and we'll say it like this, the God-given reason why there's so much immaturity And therefore, there's so much division in the church at Corinth. So, it's important that we understand this. When he writes, he's writing to, and you can see this in the opening verse of the opening chapter, the church of God in Corinth. 
So first and foremost, this is God's church. It's not their church, right? Just like this is not our church. We are stewards, okay? We, we were not owners. We're stewards of what God has entrusted us with. So if your Bible's open, verses 16 and 17, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, okay? Our gods belonging to God, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And you together, okay, every Christian in Corinth, just like every Christian around the world, together are that temple. So there's no individuality. There's communal aspects. And so he has written to God's church in Corinth. And this particular church has difficulty. And the difficulty, you can see that in the opening verses, is disunity. And the byproduct of their disunity is their immaturity, okay? So difficulty, which, which causes disunity, and the reason for that disunity is their immaturity. And their immaturity is essentially because they think they are the highest authority. Not just in some things, but if you read the whole letter, just about everything. Okay, so again, disunity because of their immaturity, thinking that, thinking that they are the highest authority. And so Paul is very concerned at what is happening because this is a church that belongs to God, right? So he's concerned because as an apostle, he has been charged to preach the gospel and establish the church. That's what apostles do, did. We'll say it like that. And then the second thing, insofar as that those who are in Christ, this, they should be going on to maturity, but they are not. Okay, maturity for unity, yeah, but you need to think with me. Maturity because of their witness in the community and their kingdom work. I mean, people are worth saving. What in the world is a church with all that babyish disunity that, that the culture knows about? What are they going to think? Other people in Corinth who do not belong to Jesus Christ, they need mature Corinthians to show them and to tell them about Christ and the great beauty, right? Now, don't we think this way? The great beauty of belonging to a church, his church. It's, it's one of the greatest privileges in my life to belong to a church. And then the double privilege is I get to serve as a pastor. So he addresses them. You see that in verse 1? It's a bad church, but he, what does he say? Brothers and sisters. In other words, he's thinking theologically. They're family. They haven't lost their salvation because they've been really, you know, creepy. No true Christian can lose their salvation no more than Jesus Christ can lose his identity. And the Christian is in Christ, and they are in Christ, and they are filled with the Spirit's fullness. Okay? But they forgot that. And therefore, you see it in the Bible, verse 1, second part, they are addressed as worldly. And then Paul gives a little more babies <laughs> needing milk, right? If you need milk, it means because you cannot digest meat. And so their immaturity is revealed, not because they've, you know, they, it's not because they've been Christians only for a little while. No, their immaturity is revealed in the fact that they are quarrelsome. You see it there. They are argumentative. They are combative. They are jealous. And they are willing to take all that and disrupt the family of God. So what does that mean? Well, they've forgotten about grace. They've forgotten about all their gospel promises and all their gospel privileges. So they've forgotten about who they are in Christ, which is not changing. Therefore, they have forgotten, listen carefully, they have forgotten about what their new standing brings to them, namely, in this context, the equality that it brings to the body of Jesus Christ. C.K. Barrett said, mere lapse in time does not grow up anyone in Christ. J.C. Ryle, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to do likewise with his brethren. That church had not learned that yet. So Christian growth doesn't come by osmosis, you know, by just showing up. I mean, there's no maturity in seniority. 
And longevity is not an automatic means of maturity. Therefore, because Christ loves his church in Corinth, he's not going to forsake it. He calls it what it is, his church. These are his, Paul, brothers and sisters. And just like a loving mother who would never find herself forsaking her slow developing child. What kind of mother would do that? It's her child. How could she abandon her child? Therefore, because the church belongs to God and the church in Corinth, as rascally as they were, they were God's people. God's not going to abandon them. So what does Paul do? He applies theology. Okay, authority, revealed truth, which, which God alone is the source. And he expounds the message of the cross as God's remedy for their problem. Now, verse 3, their immaturity works out in two ways, jealousy and quarreling. Now, this is interesting, and it's going to actually back up the study that we learned of just a moment ago. The word jealousy, and essentially in the Greek, is zeal. To be eagerly passionate, literally boiling over with self-interest or self-desire. So when a person is jealous, you're like all over yourself. Self-interest, self-desire, and it's boiling up. We, we all know that feeling. In fact, in my Greek dictionary, to be deeply committed to, with the implication of accompanying desire, to be earnest, to set one's heart on itself, what it alone wants. And we all know that. I want that. I can't have that. And one of the emotions is jealousy. Listen to your Bible, Proverbs 6, 34. For jealousy makes a person furious, and, he, and they will not spare when he takes revenge. James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. If you know the book of Corinth, the Corinthian church had a lot of evil practices. And of course, that was the danger then. Disorder, because if you would, they kept going. If your Bible's open, chapter 4, verse 60, you see it there? They kept going beyond what was written. They were trusting either in their own wisdom or they were trusting in their spiritual moments that were just different. This is what chapter 4, verse 6 says. Brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And then the classic verse, for what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I mean, that takes away all necessity for jealousy. Everyone in Christ is exactly the same before God. We, now, on the human level, we, we may look differently. We may have different stuff. We may have different abilities. But it doesn't matter. In Christ, equality. There's never a reason in Christ for disunity. That's the first word, jealousy. Second word, quarreling. And of course, that means strife, a readiness to fight, argue. This would be um, 1 Timothy 3, a contentious spirit. So you have like affection for dispute. You, we know that kind of person. We sometimes can be that kind of person. You, you want a good fight. And in that, Paul says, verse 3b, are you not? And again, two words. First word, are you not worldly? You're just behaving like the rest of humanity. You're behaving like people who have no spirit in them. I think Paul would say something like, you don't have any doctrine in your decisions. You understand what I mean? You don't have any Christian doctrine that helps you make your decisions. So he calls them worldly. And the second thing, he calls them mere humans. And sarks is the Greek word. It means like flesh. You're, you're just your typical human nature is just coming out. Okay, so this is what it means. It, when, when, when you're jealous and when you're quarreling to the church, he says, you are not only in, impeding your ability to grow or mature in Christ, now your lef lessons have to be reduced <laughs> to mere baby talk, <laughs> right? Milk is predigested food. 
Someone has to digest the food for you so that you can drink the milk. Now, that's a hard saying for the proud Corinthians to hear. That's a hard saying for anyone that's proud to hear. You're behaving like people who don't have the Holy Spirit. You're behaving like a typical human being. You're behaving like a baby. You're behaving like you have nothing in Christ when you have everything in Christ. And you see, as you move along in the letter, the church thought it could grow past the cross. They thought that was maturity. I mean, you know, they would give the cross the kind of like Christmas Easter attention, you know, kind of a superficial hold on Jesus and a superficial hold on forgiveness and a superficial hold on things of gospel-oriented. But, but, it was, but the cross and Christ, it wasn't coursing through their bodies and, and, and being part of everything in their minds. They would not believe what John Calvin said when he said, to search for wisdom apart from Christ means not simply foolhardiness, but utter insanity. Do, do you believe that? Because I'm growing to believe that more and more. To search for wisdom apart from Jesus Christ means not simply foolhardiness, but utter insanity. And so every chapter, and, and go home today, if you please go home if you have time, and, and, and see if this is true. Every chapter in this, in this letter bleeds Christ. It bleeds Christ. Because we can only grow and mature deeper into the cross and to deeper into the fullness of its implications. And that was what the Bible would call maturity. Maturity. Okay? So we're going to end this point. So what does Paul say? Well, three things. Number one, their behavior was carnal, mere human, not spiritual, no Christ. So it was graceless, crossless. It was self-centered. Therefore, it was childish, and it was foolish. Second, their behavior was worldly, driven by worldly wisdom, which is coming to nothing, controlled by their fallen nature instead of the Holy Spirit. Not godly, but ungodly. It may have been good for them on the, on the human level. It may have been good for them. Externally, it might have been good for them. But it wasn't good for them in light of who they are in Christ. Do, do you understand what I say when I say that, what I mean when I say that? It might be good on the surface, but it can't stand in the test of eternity. Third thing, the evidence was their inability to grow in their minds and mature in Christ. I have this quote in two of my black books. For, for whenever we ignore the cross, we abandon the ability for good decision, good decision making in everything. Again, for whenever we ignore the cross, we abandon the ability for good decision making in everything. That's the first point. You are God's church. Second point, you are God's field. That's beginning in verse 5. Now, because the church is so worldly and so human, they, they think that they have to pick a side, either Apollos or Paul. That's one of the issues there. Okay, who's it going to be? Is Paul the guy or Apollos is the guy? I mean, who's, who's going to be the guy to help us? And that struck Paul deeply. Now, you can't see it in the English, but if your Bible's open to verse 5, it, it's there in the Greek. Paul does not use the masculine gender and, and politely say, you know, who are we? He's not saying that. He uses deliberately the neuter, and, and, and he says, what? So in the Greek language, the neuter, neuter is like more emphatic, and it expresses kind of like dis, disdain. And when you're disdain, it means you, you don't like what they're doing. You're disapproving strongly of this pick-a-guy team mentality. And it's so self-serving for one, right? That is so self-serving, you know, who's right and who's wrong, and we'll have sides, and that'll decide, and it's so divisive because it makes a mockery of the oneness that Jesus won for us by his death and resurrection at the cross. It makes a mockery of the equality that we have in Christ. And again, if you're not thinking theologically and you're just thinking human level, then yeah, some guys appear better than others. Of course, of course. But that's human wisdom. Human wisdom. In Christ, in Christ, equality and beauty. Whenever we rate each other in Christ, it should, it should always come out the same, right? Yay, everybody gets 100. But, but we're so accustomed to, and it's a terrible custom, but we're so accustomed to rating that we think it's right. 
This is what Paul says, verse 5. They're only servants. We're, we're just, we're not a who, we're just a what. You're only servants through whom they, you've come to believe. So he deliberately plays them down as he should. They are not servants in whom the Corinthians had believed in. These two guys are not the object of their faith. They were not the authors of their faith. They're just mere men, servants in whom the Corinthians came to believe, agents, instruments that God worked through. It was J.C. Ryle who said so long ago, I am just a pen. What praise is due a pen? I mean, they were given grace from God, Apollos and Paul, and every pastor, by the way. They're given grace to do what they do, and to preach what they're preaching. And it's not like they're not needed. They are needed. They're essential to the church. And it's not like they don't have authority. They do have authority in Christ's name. And it's not like they don't need to study and they don't need to pray. Of course they do. They better. But that verse 5 is designed specifically to demote and demonk the leaders in the Corinthian church who the Corinthians were elevating and then trying to pick a side. So Paul's like, we're just a what? We're just instruments of God's activity. We're only servants, God's agent. We're going to do the job God assigned to us, and then we'll be judged by God at the end. God equipped us for the job. He should get the glory. It's God's truth. It's not ours. So we only have one boast, and it's Christ and Him crucified. And loved ones, that is true now just as much as it was true then. Indeed, without God's Spirit, now think, think with me, without God's Spirit and without God's Son, His gospel, this church cannot be the church. Do you understand that? I mean, typically we think if we don't have a big pile of money and we don't have a pile of people, then we can't be the church. No. (laughs) Without God's Spirit and without God's Son and without His gospel, we can't be the church. Now, we can be a group of nice people loyal to themselves, and loyal to our religion. But that's not the church. And so in verses 6, 7, and 8, and I'll try to hurry here, Paul identifies the different tasks there. Do you see it? And he uses the illustration of agriculture. And then he applies it to Paul and himself. Now, if you think about it, this is so babyish. I mean, look at it. This is like for children. Okay, so how do things grow? A seed must be planted. <laughs> the seed must be watered. That's verse 6. And the seed must grow. Paul's like, I planted the seed. Okay, he was the first to be in Corinth. And then he said, Apollos, Apollos watered that seed. Uh, Apollos came after Paul. You can read about it in Acts 18. They did their thing. But God made it grow. (laughs) Verse 7, now here's the kicker, right? Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. Now, anything in the Greek literally means the certain one. So let's just update the language. What Paul is saying is like, okay, I watered and Apollos, Apollos, or excuse me, I planted and Apollos watered, but God made it grow. And neither he who watered and, or planted and he who watered are anything. In other words, they're not the certain one. They're not the man. That's how a literal translation. Paul's not the man. Apollos is the man. Forgive me. God is the man. He's the one. You know, he's the man. You know the slang. He's he's the man. Okay, God is the man. Now, I can't tell you how liberating that is to hear as a pastor. Okay, this is what he's saying. Just say it loud. I am nothing. I'm just a what? I'm not the man for the church. Christ is. And if you think about it, you might say both the planning and the watering, they're like unskilled, somewhat mechanical jobs. Pretty much anybody can do them. I mean, you always go to pastor's conference and you hear two things. If God can make a donkey talk in numbers, he can make a pastor talk, right? And then the thing that Luther says, the danger of gathering a bunch of pastors in a pile, it's more like manure. That's what you have manure. You got to spread it out. That's better with manure. I blew that one. But anyway, the point is the only skill... The only expertise is when the seed grows. And Paul didn't make it grow. And Apollos didn't make it grow. What does it say there? God made it grow. That's, that's the mysterious thing. So can I tell you something funny? So in Jared's condo that he lives in, he has a, he has a push button that you push, and it's supposed to open up the gate, you know, so he can do underground parking. 
So he, he was trying to do that, and it wasn't working. And so we always, this is a common joke in our family. We do the Jedi thing. So I said, I got this, Jared, and I went, if you don't know the movie, you won't know what I'm saying. And guess what happened? Perfect comedian, comedic timing. You get it? Just a man. No, no human. That was silly. That was a dumb joke. I mean, I'm full of them. Paul can't do what he does without apostolic authority and God-given grace. Apollos can't do what he can do without God-given knowledge and God-given great. They are not the man. There's nobody in this building that is the man. Jesus Christ, if you would, is the man, the God-man. He is the man. Verse 7, he makes things grow. He makes things grow. Now, let's just be honest. That's, that's so needed in our context. I mean, we kind of are like a popularity-driven culture, and sometimes that seeps into the church. I found this quote. Oh, it was buried, but I found it. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Jesus Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. And enterprise needs customers. And customers are always right. Loved ones, This is from the heart. Enjoy this. You are not a customer. Thank God you're not a customer. You're not critics. Thank God you're not critics. And you're not to be critiqued. Thank God you're in Christ. You do not need to be critiqued. We are Christians. And we are in Christ. We will mature. And we will grow. But we will always be perfect in the eyes of the one who matters most, God our Father, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there you have it. Now, I need to stop, but we need to take, because we need to take communion. But you just see verse 8, just leave it there. They have different tasks. They got to do them. A good harvest. They're not in competition. They're going to be rewarded for their labor, verse 8. But look what it says there. Who does the judging? God And when will God do that judging? On the last day. That's the capital D. God does the judging. God does the rewarding. God gives the growth. God. I have three things I want to say and and we'll be done. Number one, you can take this under application. Jesus Christ is the foundation of this and every church, and Jesus Christ is indestructible, and therefore we are too. That's a boast in Christ. Second, there's no, no pressure at all here now. Let it go if you feel it. I might be talking to myself. Keep praying, keep loving, keep serving, keep learning, keep giving, keep risking, and keep growing. Loved ones, there is more freedom in Christ then the best this world can offer times infinity. Think that one out. There's more freedom in Christ than the best this world can offer times infinity. Final point. This is God's church. It's imperfect, but it's God's church. But isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? I think God thinks it is. Because this church like every true church, is in Christ. How could he not say otherwise about his son? Let's pray. Just two two scriptures, one from 1 Peter and then one from, from the chapter that we just read. 1 Peter, all flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the fields fade away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And that is what is preached. And then from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 and 23, everything is already yours as a gift. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it is yours. And you are Christ.
you belong to Christ, privileged to be in union with him who is God. Father, from the deepest part of our hearts, we want to thank you for your endless mercy and your sufficient grace for, for people like us. We, we know that in our sin, we, we know what we deserve, death, wrath. Yet in Christ, we find grace and peace, forgiveness, assignment, and love. Jesus, thank you for disarming the powers of hell, removing the wrath of God, Thank you that you never loved anything or anyone more than God, your Father. and Therefore, you offered up yourself as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf in love. And Father, please, by your Spirit, give to us the grace we need every day to fall down before the cross, not only in repentance, but in thankfulness. Give us the grace that we need every day to, to, to be confessional, but joyful. This is the greatest gift in the world. It's the greatest title that we could be had in Christ. So then, God, again, may this communion table increase our joy in Christ, increase our thankfulness and worship. May it keep us together. Then, Father, please give us a growing delight in the blameless position that we have because of your wonderful son, a growing strength to live in holiness, to live in obedience to you and for you, and indeed, God, to live in obedience for others, because other people matter greatly, whether they're in the church or outside the church. And so, God, as we take the juice and then first the bread, we're proclaiming the gospel, as we'll hear in a moment. So help us to do that in our lives. And as was said from our first prayer from the pulpit in this new year by Earl. Bless and guide us this year, Father. We belong to you, and we're very privileged to be able to say that, and we're very happy to say that. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.